everybody. Welcome to Chorus versus Chorus. I'm Dane. I'm Ethan. And we have on here a guest named Matt Silcock, a friend of mine from when I worked at the Chicago nonprofit uh, Facets Multimedia. Oh, you have worn many hats throughout your time at Facets, but now you are the operations manager, correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. You, you Hi, make, everybody. Yeah, you make Facets run. You are the, the grease between the wheels. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> which which is maybe like a, a not a good thing to say in Chicago to sort of grease the wheels. I was also yeah. going to say I don't think grease goes in between wheels. Oh, really? Like y- you wouldn't say grease between the wheels. You would you would grease grease the squeaky wheel, but not not the space between the wheels. Then you're greasing the axle, and I feel like if I mean Matt I guess was, you would need axle grease. If Matt was bad at his job, he would accidentally be greasing the between I've the greased the bumper that, that might explain a lot actually I might I might have to take this knowledge back to fast are you so. are you supposed to grease the carburetor are we doing the whole car yeah. are you greasing the seat like the fabric on the seat yeah and Matt also went to college in Nebraska was part of the Nebraska music scene was in a group called Opium Taylor did a stint with the group Bright Eyes and he's currently with a Chicago band called The Crippled Masters, and they have an album on Spotify that you can check out. And then Matt is being really generous today and giving us an exclusive, giving us a scoop today that will blow the minds of all fans of the blog that he pseudonymously, is that Pseudonymously, I think. Pseudonymously. Yeah. Uh, runs called Blastitude, which I will give a link to. Do you still it's run the website? such a good name. You like that name? Yeah. Blastitude. It's amazing. It's like in, in between a slur and yeah. a swear and a superhero name. Blast it. Like yeah, that kind of yeah it has it has blast tude. It implies dude. There's a lot going on. Also, I didn't come I like- up with a name. It, it was a track title on an album by Angus McLeese, who was <laughs> the original drummer for the Velvet Underground. Oh, I just read about that. He left because he didn't believe in being paid for art. Right? Yeah, apparently like the first time they had a paying gig, he he's like, "That's it, I'm out." What a what <laughs> a loser! Well, <laughs> yeah, I really reading. like to show up on time and things like that. Because yeah. being paid, is, you you get there at a certain time, you load in, you load out. He's like, "No, man, I'm just just gonna show up on my bongos." You know, <laughs> he was actually a hand drummer. Oh so. my god, was he drumming on his body too? Oh, he he's amazing. He's one yeah. of the most amazing yeah drummers of all time. So, have you been running Blastitude since like the early 2000s, Matt? Um, the year 2000, actually. Wow, was the Futuristic. first issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny you say it because he used to put 3,000. Mm, yeah, I put like fall 3,000 to imply oh, yeah. that. Yeah, that was like yeah, a this, this is a cool. Scoop. Keith would do that. He'd be like yeah. three, yeah. you know. Famously, the Jonas Brothers, their song, the Year 3000. Yeah. I, I, that's where I get most of my cultural references. Um, so I, I don't know that song, that but... This, this podcast is going to be difficult for you because <laughs> I come up with stupid shit like that. No, no I'm a poptimist. I'm a poptimist? I think you're a poptimist. Well, uh, yeah. That's something I would only let someone else decide. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's so, how it works. But that's fair, yeah. I'll, I'll take it. I well, as a transition, so the reason I've been so excited to have you on our show is that I think pretty safe to say you know the most about music out of anyone I've ever met but I I know a few other people who know quite a bit about music but they are such a chore to talk to because they're like pedantic and they they hijack the conversation you have this overflowing joy of shared knowledge and like discussion about music and so that's why I'm like really excited to have you on 
that's very great to hear. Very yeah. flattering. I, I mean, I listen to your podcast and you got a whole lot about music too. And I mean, there's just so many ways to be knowledgeable about music. So. Well, yeah. And if you don't view it as a power differential, right? right. Like kind of the problem with some nerd culture is that it, it's a, it's a one-upsmanship kind of game. Um, yeah. We've discussed this on the show before, but the idea that like, if you don't understand music theory, if you can't talk eloquently about how a song works from a technical perspective, then you're not really worthy of talking about music is a whole bunch of bullshit that I think is like musical elitism and very like patriarchal and people trying to maintain their power. Like Dane said, it's all about power. And I've asked people to, to come on this podcast and I've had people be like, but I don't know anything about music. And I'm like, no, you do. Cause you yeah. like music, right? Yeah. That's yeah. knowing about music. If you enjoy music and you can talk about why it makes you feel a certain way or why you dig a song, that's what this podcast is about. We just kind of get nerdy with it. Yeah. And I mean, with Blastitude, the zine, like writing about that, like there's, there's a whole nother echelon of music knowledge where people are snobby towards me and like I would write about bands that I was just learning about and yeah. kind of writing as I was learning and I was like I'm going to make this a safe space to just not know anything about this cult band that I just mm -hmm. found out about and I'm going to make it a safe space to say something kind of dumb that way someone else can maybe feel safe to have the same experience like yeah. mm -hmm. that was my lofty goal like I, I may not know who this guy played with before and who he influenced and, you know, what the name of the micro scene that he's considered part of is, mm -hmm. but I like the way that synthesizer sounds, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go with what you know, go as you know. And, and desire to learn, right? Yeah. If you don't have the life philosophy about like learning is fun, then, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... Our theme today, I thought a really good theme to have Matt on to, to participate in is record labels. So that is our theme for today. I thought it would be a nice gateway to kind of have a discussion with you about modern uh, musical history. So Ethan, can you tell our listeners what our four record labels are? today. Heck yes. And just to clarify for those of you who are tuning into this episode and you saw labels as the name of the mm. episode, record labels. We're not labeling <laughs> labeling people or labeling people idiots for not knowing about these, these yeah, labels. That's, yeah. that's what the, uh, the real intent of the episode is. So our four labels are Chess, SST, Flying Nun, and Drag City. And if you, dear listener, like me, did not really know anything about these record labels. Oh boy, get ready to learn. Oh, it's yeah. actually uh, going to be a really fun episode. A lot of music history, as Dane said. So This I'm is sorry. the most notes I've taken for an episode. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's, there's, there's a whole lot to learn. Yeah. yeah, I took a lot of, well, I didn't take near enough notes, but I, I could I could have taken 20, 30 pages. Yeah. Learning things about labels I thought I already knew about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so I'd, I'd love to pose a question to you, Matt. Why do you think it's important to look at music through this lens? Why is it mm. important to think about a, a record label and maybe the sound that they created? Or why aren't we just think, thinking about genre? Why aren't we thinking about artists from those labels? I mean, I think regionality is really important, like with chess, especially uh, out of these four, but also Flying Nun. I mean, it's record labels kind of funnel a region's sound. They're a gateway, a curator, I mean, all of that. But then also the production, like the record label defines production in a way too. Like uh, you see that with chess, like all, all that music kind of ended up going through their studio, their facility, that that's what creates a sound. Yeah. And that sound kind of represents, you could say a tri-state area, <laughs> mm -hmm. which it, even like Drag City can kind of do that in a way. Like you see a big Chicago 
Louisville, Kentucky connection yeah, in Drag yeah. City, even though we're, we're way beyond like snail mail and mm -hmm. regional limitations because of communication, you know, internet communication and everything. There's still that kind of regional thing going on even in the modern day. I guess a follow-up question there, like what does a record label do? practically, right? Because this yeah, is a term yeah. that I think gets thrown around. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm signed this, they signed to Interscope, they signed to whatever. Like what, what does a record label do? What's their purpose? Why do they exist? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's business infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's getting art into the business pipeline and which artists don't like to do mm -hmm. and they're not necessarily good at it. Uh, Kate, you know, there are exceptions to that rule, but usually artists want nothing to do with that. So the record label, that's really where they come in. I guess a, a thought that I have now, cause we, you know, Matt, you were just referring to modern music and, and the way in which distribution is done. And is there a place for record labels, right? Because you think of you know, it's not just kind of cultivating a regional sound, but record labels also, as you mentioned, had their own studios. Mm -hmm. They were making uh, connections for artists. They were actually putting capital behind an artist, not just pressing mm -hmm. a record, but putting that person out on, on tour and promoting the record and doing advertisements and, and all of that stuff. Well, now you can kind of do all that for free. Right? Yeah. Like, so yeah. what, what does a record label do in 2020? Let me, let me interject before you respond, Matt. Like when we get to Drag City and discuss a bit about that and kind of how Drag City was this extension of like 80s and 90s zine culture and, and mm -hmm. fandom culture, it was these two guys running this label out of their, their kitchen in Chicago. And I don't think you have that as much anymore. These kind, I, I, I think the internet has kind of like demolished that kind of truly independent filter where you have these label heads who are basically like fans and like curators. I, th I think we've kind of lost that. Yeah. I mean, we might be talking in the past tense when we talk about those things. Hmm. Um, I mean, a, a label still has a name. It's like a calling card for artists. And I think yeah. it can still have that function. You can say, well, I'm on drag city and suddenly people will go, Oh, maybe yeah. I should check out your album rather than, Oh, cool. I'll check that out. 98 years on, on, <laughs> yeah. on Bandcamp or whatever. Mm -hmm. it, it just helps artists break through that clutter, you know, mm -hmm. and, and stand out. That That's about the only <laughs> advantage left, I think. Yeah. yeah. With like chess, like you're saying, um, and we talked about this, uh, Ethan was saying this in an earlier episode about uh, Pastor T.L. Barrett, that song, Like a Ship Without a Sail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we were just kind of talking about how insane that production technique on that song. Yeah. And talking about how chess records might have had the studio with the better bass resonance is what, what yeah. Ethan was saying. But now bedroom producing, garage band, right? There's no uh, need for that either. Yeah, what, but there is still, you know, there will still be times when people hear about a studio that has a certain echo chamber or whatever, like it, and they will, they will get business because of that. that that's still going to happen because everybody recording on GarageBand isn't necessarily a utopian. It can create like kind of a democratization and can sometimes lead to homogenization where everyone kind of has that garage bandy filter or whatever. Yeah. And someone might want to work back against that and say, you know what, I'm going to spend some money. I'm going to go to one of these old school analog studios yeah. and 
make my record stand out that way. Uh, you know, it's not, it's never going to truly go away. I don't think, but as a business model, like those kind of studios aren't going to be kept open by weekly grunt work anymore. Right. They're, they're going to have to be subsidized and be something that, you know, the two times a month or less that a band wants to kind of do a vanity project like that. And they'll go open the doors and dust off the console and say, yeah. let's fire it up. But it's going to have to be subsidized by something other than that weekly kind of staying busy, staying booked. Yeah. And, and maybe from, to be optimistic uh, from like a labor standpoint, you, you at least don't have business models anymore like Motown where they basically, we, we talked about this with Marvin Gaye a few episodes ago, where they basically own the artist. They're, right. they're just kind of like a, a songwriting sweatshop uh, kind of in the 30s Hollywood studio model where these artists don't have any autonomy with their own careers. So maybe that. That's that's a, an optimistic reading, but uh, why don't we dive into it? Uh, start on our four categories, starting with, uh, we're doing this chronologically, but then uh, while we were discussing this, Matt brought up that there's a nice little Chicago bookend here. We're starting with Chess Records and ending with Drag City. So Ethan, why don't you tell us a little bit about Chess Records and uh, start us off with your choice? Sure thing. So Chess Records, a record company founded in Chicago, Illinois in 1950 by Phil and Leonard Chess, two Jewish Polish immigrants who mm -hmm. are brothers, had actually several different locations on the south side of the city over time, uh, but was initially at two different locations on South Cottage Grove, most famously located at 2120 South Michigan, which was immortalized, I suppose, by the Stones in their instrumental song, 2120 South Michigan Avenue. Chess Records specialized in blues and R&B and also jazz later on. So there's a lot to say about chess, but I think maybe talking about some of the artists that are on chess would give us a good idea of the influence that this record label had. So just last episode, we talked about Bo Diddley and the eponymous song, Bo Diddley, that influenced an entire generation of rock and roll. That's a Chess Records album. Um, Howlin' Wolf, Barry, Chuck Berry, uh, Muddy Waters, uh, let's see, Memphis Slim, um, Pigmeat Markham, who's credited as being kind of the first rap artist ever uh, with the song that he put out, The Judge. And just many, many more, some of whom we'll talk about uh, in just a minute. A few things I want to point out. One is that in 1951, so very shortly after this record label was founded, the Chess Brothers started this association with Sam Phillips of the Memphis Recording Service, which was a forerunner to Sun Records. And so through that association, they ended up getting a lot of uh, recordings from that region. So Matt, you were talking earlier about kind of the regionality and these different connections between record labels in different cities and the Chicago Louisville connection, for example. So this is a, a connection to you know, Memphis, uh, to Tennessee scene. And that's how Howlin' Wolf came onto the label. Another fact I want to point out, I mentioned that they also produced a lot of jazz. In 1952, they started, uh, if you thought Chess Records was a good label name, 
Checkers Records yep. was the better label name. <laughs> yep. uh, so Chess and Checkers Records, Checkers was their alternative label for jazz, and they needed an alternative label because there were some rules um, on radio at the time that radio stations would kind of restrict the number of uh, songs they would play from a particular label. So to get more airplay, they started Checkers Records, and then they got a whole bunch of really great jazz artists out of that and just continued to really shape the sound of R&B through these Chicago recordings. Um, they had a studio, they had a label, they had many other subsidiary labels after that, really indelible contributions to rock and roll and jazz and R&B and hip hop. It can be kind of heard just as like a cascade waterfall effect throughout the entire, all of those genres really. It's pretty safe to say that Chess Records is like, I mean, I, th I think like responsible for Chicago's blues reputation and kind of like putting Chicago on the map musically in terms of uh, the cultural history of the United States. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and it is interesting that a lot of that actually comes from these artists that came through this association with uh, a group of musicians in Memphis. Yeah. So it's this, it's this interesting melding of two different musical scenes that then yeah. led to this explosion where Chicago blues kind of becomes the, the blues capital, even though a lot of that influence came from Memphis. So maybe this like sister city kind of thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, you really have to mention Mississippi too, yeah. because Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf, I think we're both from Mississippi. Like it, it's really the Great Migration is yeah. mm. every it, chess is kind of the label that brought the Great Migration, which is bringing country blues from the South into yeah. an urban environment and then mm. bringing that to the world. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely a, a perfect description of it there. So. There's so many artists, we've already mentioned a lot of them, but I want to talk about the song that I chose yeah. uh, because this is a, a group that I didn't know anything about. There were a lot of artists that w we could have talked about. I think um, Helen Wolf is kind of one of my favorites, but I wanted to dig into the very large catalog of chess records. And so the song that I chose is by the Dells and it's a song called Oh What a Night. It's not that Oh What not a Night. The, not the Frankie Valley. Yeah. <laughs> not that one. So the Dells, I think in digging into this catalog of chess, I was I was looking for something that struck me. Um, and this this song in particular struck me for a couple of reasons. One is it is like the perfect encapsulation of the dreamy 60s, 70s doo-wop vibe. I love the dum 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 the, 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 the like doo-wop bass vocal is just so of an era. I think the lead vocal is one of those beautiful, saccharine isn't the right word, but like almost like honey-hued vocal that is really typical of chess and this kind of sound that ended up being really influential. So the Dells uh, from Harvey, Illinois. Not a lot of bands mm. from Harvey, I don't think. Huh. So yeah, I know that uh, town. I do too. Um, <laughs> you do. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the, 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 mall, the mall that was destroyed in the Blues Brothers was in Harvey. Was in Harvey. Yeah. But uh, they came out of Harvey and ended up getting this big hit, Oh What a Night, because it was actually a, a remake of a, another song of a 50s classic, again, same title. And so this kind of propelled them into more stardom. And they ended up actually, unlike a lot of uh, doo-wop bands of their era, ended up having a lot of commercial success 
into the, the, the later 60s and into the 70s. And so I just thought it would be interesting to talk about the Dells and, and to talk about the song, again, because of the way that it sounds, but also because they're one of the artists from chess that is actually from the Chicagoland area, whereas a lot of the other artists that we've, we've talked about are not from the Chicagoland area, but were brought onto the chess label and then helped kind of form that sound. very of an era it just sounds like you could be in like a malt shop mm-hmm. oh yeah Great. no i i didn't know the dells at all but i absolutely loved the song and i i love love that era too i have the rhino doo-wop box set i can see it right now on nice. my and I mean, it's four discs and it's all like that like you say dreamy it's got this kind of elegant ballroom feel mm-hmm. kind of almost like a duke ellington dare i say bourgeois but it's still <laughs> rooted on the street corner it's kind of got that aspiration mixed with yeah, a little wistfulness. Like, yeah, and and a lot of these kinds of doo groups are, I think, so much of a throwback because the way in which pop artists are manufactured now is it's a single person and there isn't this foundation of musicality with a, a group really being built around vocalists, like a group yeah. of vocalists. Mm-hmm. I think this still exists in like K-pop, right? But in, in American pop music, it's so much about like the individual, the Rihanna's, the Ariana Grande's, like the individual auteurs. And so it's really nice to go back in time and think about these groups that were just, you know, singing a cappella or singing in a choir and started singing together and almost like kind of how NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and all these like boy bands of the 90s and early 2000s came to be in. I think K-pop is doing that best now in the modern context. Totally wild that that's like where where this influence yeah. ended up 60 years after the <laughs> the initial recordings, like who's doing it now? I never would have guessed like, you know, pop bands coming out of Korea, but there you go. Matt, tell us about your pick. Well, um, I picked Rescue Me by Fontella Bass. Um, Classic. Yeah, I, it's a song that I think lots of people know. I mean, pretty much everybody knows. It was uh, was actually a million seller for Chess. And it was, I believe, their second million seller, the first being Maybelline by Chuck Berry. Cadillac looked like steel, and I caught Maybelline at the top of the hill. Maybelline, why can't you be true? huge hit it very much sounds like a Motown song it I think 1964 is when it came out so you know Motown was already a big influence and I think it was kind of a nod towards that Fontas was from St. Louis like Chuck Berry she grew up there she did move to Chicago kind of as a young adult and lived there you know like we, we've already alluded to this like picking one song to represent on a label like chess i mean it's like i'm going to show you this beautiful valley by picking one tree yeah, <laughs> yeah you yeah, know yeah. do you stand on the ridge of the valley and pick the largest tree you see you know that would be chuck berry maybelline or something right. like that or do you go in and find the, that weird tree with all these interesting branches mm-hmm. and that's kind of what fontella about even though it was a huge hit there's all these very interesting branches when you look at that actual recording so I'm going to go into that because Fontella Bass was actually married to Lester Bowie. And Lester Bowie was the trumpeter in the Art Ensemble of Chicago. 
Hmm. Lester Bowie is also from St. Louis, joined up with the Art Ensemble of Chicago in the mid-late 60s, right around the same time that uh, Fontella Bass, eh, a couple years after this hit happened. Fontella Bass kind of was disillusioned by the music scene. She co-wrote Rescue Me in what they called a jam session, which is like a three or four way jam session right there in the chess office. Oh, wow. There was a couple staff songwriters. I don't have their names in front of me either, but the three of them were just riffing and kind of acapella wrote this song right there in the studio while they're hanging around waiting to do something else. Fontella Bass very much was coming up with the lyric and vocal hooks while they were sitting around doing this and never got credit for it. They promised her credit. The record came out without her name on it. Uh, so she asked why. And they said, oh, well, you're you're in the legal documents. You're just not on the label, you know, the, mm-hmm. the actual oh <laughs> label. And they just kind of kept stringing it along. And she, she never did get credited anywhere. She did finally get a $50,000 settlement just, just a few years ago. Wow. Um, I'm assuming the staff and songwriters at Chess, as with all these other labels, were, were all men. That's that's kind of my yeah. assumption, right? Well, and that's kind of what what's at play the dynamic that's at play here in this yeah. in this story. Oh yeah, these were definitely men. Yeah, Rina. and I think also the, the the dynamic of songwriters and artists was a lot stronger then, where you have these, like you said, Dane, like there are these record labels that are hiring songwriters, and then if you're the artist, you sing the song, and it, if you were a songwriter and, a, and an artist, then you would do that, but it was very rare that there would be people who could shift back and forth between those worlds unless it was established, and I think in this case, you have an artist who was supposed to be the artist and not supposed to be songwriting. Yeah. You know, that probably had something to do with it but let's not discount the sexism either <laughs> yeah no you're, you're absolutely right about that like the especially when things happen spontaneously like that it was easy for those contributions to be missed and it, it wasn't just vocalists and artists you know sometimes a drummer for example would come up with a really key part that would really define a song but drummers never got songwriting credit that was unthinkable <laughs> Let me go into the band who played on Rescue Me because it's very insane. It it is insane. So the drummer was Maurice White. Player was Lewis Satterfield. Both of them, if you know the name Maurice White, went on to form a little band called Earth, Wind, and Fire. Rescue Me was 1965. In 19 Maurice White moved to LA and he had already formed Earth, Wind and Fire in Chicago, took the band to LA and that's where they became megastars. So that's fascinating. And then this takes it back to another piece of Chicago history, which is the Afro Arts Theater, which was founded by Phil Coran. Phil Coran played trumpet with Sun Ra, but he actually quit Sun Ra in really early on because he was kind of a guru figure like Sun Ra and didn't want to be a sideman. Too many gurus in the band. Yeah. Too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. Can't have two gurus. That's too too high a rate of gurus. Right. 
Yeah, because Phil Coran was very visionary and uh, he had all these kind of theories and concepts of music and he was a teacher. He taught these to, you know, a very kind of community organizer as much as, as he was a composer. And so he started this place called the Afro Arts Theater that gave the start to like the nucleus of Earth, Wind and Fire. Also Chaka Khan sang there as a young teenager. There, there's a lot there. I, we could do a podcast on Phil Coran. I just wanted to bring it up for that. Like Phil Coran's footprint is on Rescue Me. Wow. Also the guitarist on Rescue Me was Pete Cozy, who was part of the Afro arts theater scene as well. He was in the artistic heritage ensemble with Phil Coran, who was the band leader. And then after he worked with chess, he ended up in Miles Davis's band in this in the early 70s, uh, Miles Davis's electric bands, which were mm. very avant-garde, hardcore. Like Bitches Brew era. Yeah, post Bitches Brew, um, kind of from 1970 to 1975, when Miles really went deep into this long form Bitches Brew style kind of funk meets uh, Stockhausen is what how Miles <laughs> described it, James Brown meets Stockhausen. Pete Cozy was this bearded, huge Afro sunglass wearing guy who kind of sat in a chair off to the side and just played the most screaming, strange guitar leads mm. through like 19 pedals. So he, he's a really interesting character. He also played on the Howlin' Wolf electric album. And, you know, there was also Electric Mud, the Muddy Waters electric yeah. album where they tried to kind of go psychedelic and, and yeah. sell records to the young people. <laughs> and Pete Cozy talks about how Howlin' Wolf saw his pedals and told him to go, go drop them in Lake Michigan <laughs> when he showed up for the Howlin' Wolf session and got all of his weird distortion pedals out. Grab your telephone, cause something ain't right, that evil. So that's one connection, one of the many connections on Rescue Me. And then uh, we've got Minnie Ripperton on background vocals. Uh, Minnie Ripperton went on to have a big hit, Loving You. Yep. seventies her daughter is Maya Rudolph. Wow. No way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh she, you know, sang with Stevie Wonder a little bit. She was also in a band called Rotary Connection, which was again kind of Chess Records attempt to reach the psychedelic crowd, the <laughs> the Woodstock crowd. It was like this mixed ethnicity, mixed gender band, kind of in the Sly Stone model. And Minnie Ripperton was the lead vocalist for that band. producer of that band was Charles Stepney, who's kind of a legendary Chicago-based producer at the time, but he plays vibes on Rescue Me. 
So all those people are on Rescue Me. Yeah, you're not kidding about the branches it's, there. This yeah, really, so this, this song really is like a microcosm of chess records and its historical importance. Yeah, and also kind of all these branches that feed into Chicago, you know, like yeah. the Phil Coran branch, that kind of black visionary thing that was going on, but also the St. Louis connection. Um, and then more on that. I'm still not done, guys. Uh, <laughs> in, I had mentioned that Fontella Bass was married to Lester Bowie from the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And right around the same time that Fontella Bass was disillusioned by this, her experience as kind of a pop star, the Art Ensemble of Chicago was disillusioned with the work they were able to get in America as an avant-garde jazz band. And they moved to Paris and Fontella Bass moved with them huh. um, because she was married to Lester Bowie. And in Paris, in, in Europe, they, they recorded albums with Fontella Bass. Uh, and there's a track called Theme de Yo-Yo, which maybe you guys have heard. It's an amazing track. Uh, it's better than Rescue Me. It's stunning. So, yeah, a lot going on with Keith, Keith and I, I think we have a, an uphill to climb this entire episode because Matt, <laughs> Matt comes packing with the single most historically, uh, historically substantial song yeah. in the catalog. Well, you know, the other thing about it is it's not just historically important. It's a fucking banger. It's a bop. Yeah. Uh, this song. Sure is. Uh, growing up, my mom had three musical artists that she listened to, and they were the three, three CDs in our house. And they were Bob Marley's greatest hits, Phil Oaks' greatest hits, and Aretha Franklin's greatest hits. And so when I heard Rescue Me for the first time when I was like, I don't know, seven, I just assumed it was an Aretha song. And the thing that stood out to me now that I'm hearing the song again and really thinking through, like, why did I have that association? I think it's because of the horns. In the chorus, at the very end of the chorus, there is this stepwise motion that the horns do that go down, that take you out of the chorus and back into the verse. And it is like so satisfying. You hear that same kind of thing in a lot of Otis Redding, a lot of Aretha Franklin, just like there's so many elements of the song that are incredibly archetypal. The bass that in intros this whole song, the mini Ripperton singing background vocals, which is crazy. But I think to me, it's the horn section that is like the, the real foundation of the song and, and gives it that vibe. So it's... Yeah it's really nice to learn about the rest of the history of the song and put it into the broader musical context. But like, this is just a classic. Like this, yeah. it, this is one of those songs that just makes you feel good. All right, so for my choice, which doesn't stand a chance, uh, although I really like this song. This was a new discovery for me because I'd never listened to the album At Last by Etta James. And this song really, really jumped out at me for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Etta James, everyone knows her because of At Last. I'd say like one of the five most played wedding songs probably. Mm. Uh, first father-daughter dance kind of songs. Etta James was born in Los Angeles to a 14-year-old mother. 
I learned. And her story is marked by a lot of, of struggle with, with addiction, with a lot of um, interpersonal issues and a lot of legal troubles. Apart from, you know, at last and a few of the singles from this, a uh, pop success throughout her, her career eluded her for the most part, even though, uh, as Jerry Wexler, the great producer, once called her the greatest of all modern blues singers. Yeah, so this track from the album At Last, which was released by Argo Records, which was a division of Chess Records, which was formed to start recording jazz, but then they branched out into pop, blues, and calypso, the, is the reason that Etta James came to, to record in Chicago with Chess because of this expansion into Argo Records. This track in particular, My Heart Cries, uh, was recorded with Harvey Fuqua. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think so. Yeah, Harvey Fuqua, he was the founder of the doo-wop group The Moonglows, and he was pretty integral in forming Motown Records and actually opened the doorway for Marvin Gaye to start his career with Motown, and then eventually sold off his own label, Anna Records, to Barry Gordy, the owner of Motown. The, the reason I chose this song is the harmony between Etta James and Harvey Fuqua. so weird. The harmony is so dark and mm. it really stood out to me because it does not sound to me like a doo-wop or an R&B harmony. It sounds more like the mamas and the papas or the birds, this kind of like Laurel Canyon sort of, it sounds a lot like a bridge to that kind of folk rock of LA and less like a, a typical doo-wop or R&B song. But yeah, I, this song really, really stood out to me. The whole album is, is phenomenal, an absolute classic. But this song, uh, I don't know if either of you noticed it, but it really, uh, there's, there's something off about it in the most wonderful way, something a little anachronistic, or at least maybe not tied to the kind of regional sound that you would expect out of Chess Records or an album by Etta James. They're doing this very interesting close harmony where they're starting on the same note and then one voice is dropping down. Yeah. And that's not something that you really hear typically in R&B vocals, especially of this era. I think it gives you that sense of like, this is a totally different kind of vocal harmony because normally vocal harmonies, they're spaced pretty evenly throughout the song or they're far enough apart that you're not getting that kind of crunchy, close harmony. Almost the uncanny. Yeah, yeah, like it, it, it's a little bit uncomfortable because when two notes are that close, you, you get these kind of weird frequency overlaps, whereas like a, a harmony of a third or a fifth or something like that is much more comfortable. There isn't as much interaction between those two notes and so I think that that's yeah now that I'm thinking now that I'm listening to the song again like that really does stand out as kind of a unique piece yeah. of this song because it's totally outside of what you would hear in Rescue Me or definitely in Oh What a Night right that's like classic barbershop mm -hmm. kind of choir vocal harmony that's spaced very you know in a certain way and this is, this is pretty different oh, 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 oh. 
No, this song is rad. Yeah, it's super good. And Etta James, I think because of the hugeness of her voice, uh, especially in At Last, you kind of don't notice how young she, she was like 21 when this album was recorded. And so like there are a lot of textures to her voice that are very live and like limber, I suppose. You wouldn't kind of associate with that kind of classic, powerful belting kind of voice. So I was really excited to discover this track, but who are we kidding here? This, no, category, this round, this round goes to Matt's choice. Rescue 100%. Such a good song. Our next category, and I'm excited to talk possibly too much about this. <laughs> is, Don't we always? <laughs> so we're hopping all the way from the 60s to the late 70s and 80s to, as I will get into in just a moment, truly one of the most astounding independent record labels in American history, uh, SST Records. And I will say uh, at the front here, there are gonna be not one, not two, but three weird Tucson connections in today's yeah. episode. <laughs> so SST Records uh, stands for Solid State Tuners. And it was founded and run by the founder, guitarist, and songwriter of the seminal hardcore band Black Flag. Everybody's gonna hang out here tonight. All right. We'll pass out on the couch. Greg Jinn. So the first Tucson connection here is that Greg Jinn was born in Tucson, which I never knew. I didn't know and, that either. Yeah, and then moved to Hermosa Beach, which is a suburb of LA where actually my cousin uh, grew up. So kind of weird there. And then Black Flag came out of that uh, Hermosa Redondo beach town, uh, LA suburb kind of milieu. And then as a, as a quick side note, the second Tucson connection is that SST band Minutemen, the guitarist and singer and songwriter of the Minutemen, Dee Boone, tragically died uh, at the age of 27 in Tucson uh, in a car crash on I-10. Super weird. Very but um, Greg Jinn, it is maybe diplomatic to say, Matt, uh, that he is a divisive figure. Would you say that? Oh, yeah. Fair? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll post a link in the show description to an interview with him with, uh, in Rolling Stone and also to a really funny Hard Times uh, article about how Greg Jinn is a jerk. But uh, it is uh, impossible to overstate how important uh, of a figure he is in the history of 80s LA hardcore punk and not just LA, but American hardcore punk. Yeah. Uh, he is arguably the mastermind behind Black Flag. And I won't get into it too much. He is currently feuding with his bandmates over copyright ownership of the name. Uh, well, actually, I believe a company in Korea owns the name Black Flag, but they are feuding over the the Black Flag bars. So mm -hmm. every it's everyone in Black Flag against Greg Jin. And yeah, they yeah. formed the band called Flag yeah. right. to, to tour and play old Black Flag classics while Greg Ginn was playing. Oh, sorry, I think it's Greg Ginn, but oh, I'm sorry. Hard G, but that's all right. But uh, while he was touring under the name Black Flag, playing kind of their newer material with a few classics sprinkled in. 
I'm glad you corrected me because I don't want to get angry hate mail from uh, <laughs> germs t-shirt bedecked uh, <laughs> uh, nerds. Um, but yeah, I'll I'll link to all that. Greg Ginn is a we'll we'll just leave it at uh, divisive. He's, he's not just feuding with his former band members. He pretty much holds on to the uh, publishing and copyright for every band that's ever been on SST. And yeah. It's like a death grip that he won't relinquish. The butthole surfers had to take him to court. Yeah. I believe yeah. Sonic Youth was the, able to to remove their, their contract with SST. So yeah. Actually, great. scratch that. Butthole surfers were on touch and go. That's where they had their problems. Their problems. I mean, yeah. A lot of problems with these businessmen, right? But yeah, like who's who's do is still if you if you see Sestone Publishing, C E S S T O N E, that's Greg Ginn's publishing company. Okay. And if Husker Du is still under Sestone Music, that means they haven't gotten their haven't rested it from they haven't rested it from yeah. these clutches. As with any kind of uh, successful businessman, you have that kind of uh, pretty aggressive personality. But the the results of SST speak for themselves. So SST began first as a small electronic equipment store that Greg Ginn ran when he was 12 years old. Um, and then when he formed Black Flag, he repurposed SST as a uh, as a storefront record label in 1978 in order to distribute Black Flag's records. They began pretty uh, cop-hassled uh, mm-hmm. and, and pretty pretty scrappy. Michael Arizad in this, oh, quoted in this life. article by John Dolan mm-hmm. uh, in Spin Magazine called The Revival of Indie. Uh, Michael Arizad, who wrote uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life, wrote that SST was an underground railroad, which I think uh, is an extremely offensive analogy. <laughs> but it still stands. Yeah. Right. Um, and the point here, and I'll, I'll get to this later, Nirvana, if we're going to keep with this offensive <laughs> analogy, rode the tracks to enormous mainstream success because of the groundwork laid by SST. Uh, SST became arguably the most important purveyor of underground music in the 80s and maybe in American history. I'm happy to be debated about that but I, I think that's fair to yeah po- I, to posit yeah yeah I think in terms of especially in the 80s and these other kind of independent labels uh that coexisted with with SST such as uh Touch and Go in in Chicago and and stuff like that like I think maybe like DC's Discord records can maybe go toe-to-toe with SST but even so I mean listen to the roster here SST distributed some little-known albums such as Damaged by Black Flag, The Meat Puppets 2, Zen Arcade by Husker Du, Double Nickels on the Dime by Minutemen, Eye Against Eye by Bad Brains, You're Living All Over Me by Dinosaur Jr., Sister by Sonic Youth, Ultra Mega OK by Soundgarden, and Milo Goes to College by Descendants. So really, in other words, this like scrappy little underground label put out just about every important classic of the American underground in the 80s. And I'm talking about albums that like Rolling Stone would put on a list of the greatest albums of all time. Any of these albums next to albums by Bob Dylan and mm-hmm. Nirvana, right? It's utter lightning in a bottle. It's impossible to conceive of that all of this happened within 10 years by this, this tiny little label. By the 90s, SST moved on to jazz recordings. And like I was saying about this this Underground Railroad analogy, uh, to put it simply, SST kind of created the financial bridge for bands who wanted to break away from the hardcore punk scene into what eventually became this extremely profitable industry of alt-rock. 
right? A kind of more mm. eclectic kind of mixture of styles that culminated financially in 1991 with Nirvana and then eventually gave rise to 90s indie rock subculture, which we'll uh, talk about with Drag City. And before we get into it a bit, uh, the other kind of irony of Greg Ginn's story is that he really represents this wholesome like 1950s style of like can-do businessman attitude, you know, small business scrappiness. But like he's also, his band is like one of the anti-TV culture, anti-capitalist hardcore bands. So there's kind of a funny, funny irony to that. Before I move on to my my choice, Matt, did I miss anything crucial? Oh, geez. There's there's so many, like, wrinkles to the SST story. Um, one thing I would add when you're talking about the infrastructure that they laid down yeah. as far as labels that kind of was a bridge to the alt-rock of the 90s is what they did with touring. In a way, they are what allowed the American hardcore scene to become a national network. Mm -hmm. simply by going out on tour in like 1979 you know living in LA they had this they had to get all the way to the east coast somehow and the yeah. way they decided to do that was by playing every possible town they could and they did not discriminate as far as uh, population of the city venues they didn't care they would play anywhere in your town yeah. they just needed a sympathetic ear who had a little bit of hustle to set up a show for them so they and, played and VFW a, halls and things like that and a couch I assume yeah exactly yeah. and they really created this network just one town at a time and brought this genre to these towns quicker than the records could get there in a yeah. lot of cases. And it really created this network that, I mean, when I toured in the 90s, um, this same kind of decrepit touring <laughs> where you stay on a filthy couch, we, we were literally playing places that in towns that wouldn't have a scene if Black Flag hadn't done this, wow. you know, 10, 15 years earlier. Which also so, really answers the question of like, how does this small crappy label get a band from Minnesota? Yeah, well, that was absolutely how. I mean, their their tours were also A&R trips, yeah. you know, absolutely. I mean, Greg Ginn is an absolutely phenomenal presence in all this, but I would add Chuck Dukowski, the bass player, because original bass player for Black Flag, because he uh, was sort of the touring guru. He was the guy, they, they had their own in-house company called Global Booking, and Chuck Dukowski was the manager of that. And it was all done by phone, you know. Uh, in fact, they, they worked from a bank of pay phones outside of one of their offices because they couldn't afford a phone line for a while. Yeah. And Chuck Dukowski would go out and work these five pay phones and set up tours. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah the, that's crazy. the utter, utter epicenter of, of this entire of DIY massive. in a lot of ways. Like yeah. you say, Discord on the East Coast and, and SST on the West Coast kind of invented DIY in True. America as we know it today. Yeah. So my real answer to the best SST song is probably Vietnam by the Minutemen. But uh, I wanted to dig a bit and learn something new. So I learned about this band, Dicks or, you know, the dicks. So I first chose one of the most influential and important 80s hardcore songs, Dicks Hate the Police, but that uh, is not SST. SST picked them up after that single was released, but my choice is Anti-Clan Part 1. I, I chose it because of our, our current political moment. It's just kind of amazing to hear this song in 2020 and just think about how uh, cutting edge Gary Floyd was. So the dicks were uh, like a pre-queer core communist hardcore band. Hardcore communist and communist, communist hardcore. hardcore. <laughs> um, like the D in their logo is a hammer and sickle. 
So this is the first track from their SST album, really I think their only album, Kill from the Heart. Uh, they were originally based in Austin, Texas, and Gary Floyd was the front man. He was a rare, openly gay musician in the hardcore scene. I'm assuming maybe like in California, you know, the LGBTQ community was was treated somewhat well in the hardcore community. I, I could be wrong, but it, it seems a little trickier in the in the Texas scene. Oh, I don't yeah. know the politics of that that scene were in terms of queerness. I remember Mike Watt saying it made an impression on him when he met when he first played in Austin and hooked up with the Austin scene, the big boys, but big boys and dicks both had openly gay lead singers. Yeah. So I remember him saying that that, that was heavy for him yeah it it helped him grow as a person and accept homosexuality as a lifestyle you know not that he was homophobic before but it was kind of the first time he interacted just even yeah and that's all it takes right yeah exactly i would say like homosexual identity is not uh gary floyd's pet topic it's mostly uh hating cops so uh i like this uh all music review says that his viewpoint results in cop killer material like the title track pigs run wild and anti-clan part one back when ice t was still wearing track suits and rapping about breakdancing. on this track anti-clan part one he says i see that you're a policeman I know you're in the Ku Klux Klan. You got a gun hung on your hip. It's underneath your silky slip. But we'll fight you. We'll fight. You're blue by day, but white by night. So yeah, pretty pretty heavy stuff to to think about in in 2020, and kind of how I don't know courageous this was, and it it makes me really think like how lonely it must have been to be anywhere on the left in Reagan's America, and also just because of the the atomization of these kind of regional scenes and how easy it is in 2020 to kind of learn that other people think like you politically and kind of look around and think like this is bullshit but also how cathartic it must have been to go to your local record store and maybe there's like a cool communist clerk there and he's like check these guys out and you go and you're like oh my god I'm not so alone in my Nebraska suburb you know yeah well yeah like just seeing a record called kill from the heart by the dicks makes you think okay this is punk rock i'm gonna buy this you know i know i know i'm choosing a punk rock record yeah and then you get home and all these other messages start insinuating through you know yeah we had our our good friend aj johnson on and that's how he developed his political consciousness is listening to punk music finding the music cool and then realizing like, whoa, there's a lot of other stuff going on here. Yeah. And And I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, I had a friend who talked about, I mean, the dead Kennedys lyrically had enough in there to learn, but how Jello Biafra would release these spoken word cassettes in the eighties where he was kind of ranting about these more informed worldviews, you know, more of like a Noam Chomsky kind of thing. And how that was such a gateway for people like they went from listening to holiday in cambodia which gave them an idea to hearing jello's spoken word and actually explicate in detail what you know besides uh, apart from the catchy slogans yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that's my choice anti-clam part one by the dicks and i think it's a, a good thing for this moment you know maybe your your local officer is not literally in the clan but the uh the sentiment stands I see the two police men I know you're 
So, Ethan, tell us about your pick, the fastest hardcore band of all time, Bad Brains. <laughs> yeah, so I chose a song by the band Bad Brains. The song is FVK, which stands for Fearless Vampire Killers. Bad Brains is a DC hardcore slash punk slash reggae band. And we're known for, as Dane said, being the fastest hardcore band in, in the land. Um, but I think very notably, they are an all black hardcore band and not a scene that is particularly diverse. Um, I know we just talked about, uh, Dane, your choice of uh, a band that's got an openly gay front person. I think probably just as uncommon are bands that are all non-white. Bad Brains, um, not only known for that, but also known for coming from a background of jazz and moving into hardcore and punk, integrating reggae into their sound as well. They were founded in 1976 as, a, as actually a jazz fusion ensemble called Mind Power. They were trying to do sort of like a Stevie Wonder, uh, Chick Corea kind of jazz thing. And then the lead guitarist, Dr. No, love, love these names for the musicians in the band, thought, well, we can sort of incorporate these different disparate sounds into one scene because he saw what was going on in the UK and what I think has historically continued in the UK, where there's a lot more open mixing of genres and said, why don't, why don't we do that? I ended up choosing this song, Fearless Vampire Killers, for two reasons. One is the same as Dane, always timely to talk about lyrically uh, what this song is about, uh, but especially now. So the song is a minute and seven seconds long, not a whole lot of lyrics, but uh, they are. The bourgeoisie had better watch out for me all throughout this so-called nation. We don't want your filthy money. We don't need your innocent bloodshed. We just want to end your world. The real reason I chose this song is because it is off of their live album. There are a few things I like more than good live albums and yeah. especially good live albums from bands that play in genres that are better live. And yeah. punk and hardcore are just better live. It's really hard to capture the sound and the energy of a live punk show. Uh, and I think that this, this song does it especially well. It's just a really hard-hitting shock to your system, and it's over in a minute. Brendan Canty from Fugazi, who grew up in D.C. and saw the Bad Brains as a very young teenager. I recently heard him on a podcast say, Bad Brains were obviously a million times better than everybody else on the planet, like immediately. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the impression yeah. you got when they launched into their first song. It took like two seconds to realize that this is literally the best band. Yeah you've yeah. ever seen yeah it's, it's and also a band full of really talented musicians which yeah. i don't think 
punk or hardcore was particularly known for. Not the kind like, hard. Yeah. Like you've, you know, again, the, the founding guitarist of this group was somebody who was playing jazz, right? They, they started as a jazz fusion group. I think punk is sort of jokingly known as the genre for people who don't really know how to play their instruments. Well, it turns out you can play punk and hardcore really well if you know how to play your fucking instrument. Well, and I, I guess I'm remiss in not, well, I, I kind of mentioned it, the kind of bridge that SST gave in the underground between hardcore and what eventually became alt-rock, but like this entire roster of classic bands on SST represent the blowing up of the boundaries of what punk and hardcore were supposed to sound like, right? The Minutemen, especially, like, are like no hardcore you've ever heard. SST was extremely integral in uh, being part of that that wave of kind of blowing the boundaries apart in terms of what we define as punk and, and kind of moving it from punk being a sound to punk being an ethos and a, mm-hmm. a kind of animating curiosity as well. Um, yeah, that does segue into my yeah. pick, if, if I may. Um, Please. You may. Dinosaur Jr. is, this, I picked a song called Sludge Feast from their mm. album, You're Living All Over Me, which was their SST debut. It was, I think, their third album. Dinosaur Jr. was from Amherst, Massachusetts. Again, speaking of kind of the regionality of SST going out and finding all these weird regions where, uh, you know, Amherst is exactly the type of town that Black Flag would not overlook. Instead of just playing Boston, they were also playing Amherst in in Western Massachusetts, you Mm -hmm. know, with a population of 30,000 people. So uh, Dinosaur Jr., Jay Maskus was the singer-guitarist, Lou Barlow was the bassist, and the drummer was named Murph, um, nicknamed Murph. Great drummer name. Yeah, so they were like, you know, classic power trio, but Jay Maskus and Lou Barlow had been in a hardcore band called Deep Wound earlier in 1982 was when that band was formed. And, you know, like, like Dane is saying, they, they wanted to go beyond the kind of hardcore trappings and the limitations of that. They were influenced by, you know, Neil Young, uh, Black Sabbath, thrash metal, folk, uh, all these kind of different things. So Dinosaur Jr. was kind of their bridge out of the limitations of hardcore. And I really think it came together on You're Living All Over Me, which is yeah. just an incredible album. Um, Utter my, classic. Yeah, it's it's unreal. Like, it's just got this magic weirdness to it. And I think the song Sludge Feast is a perfect encapsulation of all the kind of magic that's going on in this album. It's, it's six or seven minutes long. So it's this kind of epic, it's this epic heartbreak song. It starts with like these kind of long, a long series of basically like heavy metal riffs. going and the, the vocals don't come in for a while and when the vocals do come in it's this shift into a more melodic feel it kind of shifts away from metal into this yearning kind of neil young and crazy well, horse a little thing. country drop yeah jay mascus really had a, a drawl more than anything else right yeah he really leans into the drawl and sings these amazing lyrics
basically just a song about working up the nerve to talk to a girl. He says, like, I've got the guts now, you know? <laughs> That's one of the lines, like, I've got the guts to talk to you now. To me, like, the, the whole song is about him, like, being across the cafeteria from, yeah. <laughs> from a girl. Or it's yeah. a little bit Hank Williams-y to go, to go back to the country thing. There's, that, there's a country uh, tinge to that, I feel. Yeah, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Mm-hmm. But... It, like this, these guts are killing. That line will haunt me forever. Like it seems, <laughs> seems like that's bringing Hank Williams through hardcore punk in, into the future. What a good triptych to just show the the wide ranging sounds and like again the valley and the trees you know what did what did we we're missing so many different wonderful varieties of pine but mm-hmm. uh yeah know, like not having the minutemen is kind of sad absurd. but you know but it, they're we're, we're digging a little deeper so yeah that's good. yeah who are we giving it to i really liked anti-clan yeah i'll give it to you dane why thank you all right, now we're getting into Matt's hour of power, his, uh, his bread and butter. As if we hadn't run too long already. <laughs> That's why so, we edit. Makes it yeah. sound, no, sound like we're efficient. Nice and tight. So yeah. next up is Flying Nun, which is a, a label from New Zealand. And we should introduce Matt's uh, upcoming uh, introduction, enthusiastic introduction here to Flying Nun by, by saying that Matt is a, is a Kiwi by heritage. Your father... Uh, is a first generation. Kiwi. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he's he's from New Zealand. Uh, he he moved to America in 1968 to go to grad school at Penn State and never went back. Met my mom, who was another grad student at Penn State, and has lived here ever since. So, Flying Nun is definitely for our our listeners going to be the uh, hippest new label you're going to learn about today. So. Yeah, Matt, tell us a bit about Flying Nun and the Dunedin sound. Dunedin sound, yeah. Um, there's so much I could say here with my New Zealand heritage, you know, having been to New Zealand a few times in my life. When I first heard Flying Nun music, which wasn't through my New Zealand connections at all, it was through the usual like reading Spin and Alternative Press and watching 120 Minutes is how I first heard Flying Nun music. Um, I immediately said, this sounds just like New Zealand. And there's a couple things there, like uh, the landscape of New Zealand is very much in this music. New Zealand is a really rural country. There's 4 million people in the entire country and about a third of them are in one city, which is Auckland, Mm. the largest city, which is way up at the top almost the northernmost part of the country. And when you work your way south from there, it just gets really increasingly rural and you have this really rugged coastline, mostly undeveloped, where you know you can really see these kind of weather systems coming in off the sea and hitting these mountains and rainforests that is inland. And you hear all that in Flying Nun music. You hear the kind of raininess and the overcast and the power of the sea. Also, you hear what I think of as the New Zealand character, kind of the national character. And I'm going to wildly generalize here, but there's this thing about New Zealanders, you know, as, as a British colony, 
much like Australia, they were these kind of British people who went so far away into such a remote and rugged part of the world. They have this kind of unpretentiousness and they consider themselves hicks. I mean, my, my cousins would call themselves, uh, you know, us hick Kiwis hmm. when they were talking about themselves in relation to England. It's, it's like talking about the Midwest versus, you know, New York City. So they have that unpretentiousness but they're also they also have this sort of feistiness about it you know like that kind of underdog chip on your shoulder it's sort of submerged in this personality which presents itself as very laid back and very gentle and polite but underneath there's this real testiness kind of like don't mess with New Zealand you know don't don't think I'm a dumb hick just because I'm a hick yeah you know and I can hear all that in Flying Nun, where it presents itself as kind of gentle, polite, melodic, yeah. pleasant to listen to, but it's got this very nervous energy, this undercurrent to it. New Zealand really seized on punk as a way to deal with their own kind of internal testiness and mm-hmm. the chip on their shoulder. Yeah. So yeah, like that's kind of my context for Flying Nun. Yeah. As far as the label itself, they started in 1981, much like Discord started to document the music of one scene, which is the Washington DC scene. Flying Nun started in Christchurch, New Zealand to document the Christchurch scene. and. Okay. Yeah, and oh, I didn't know that. Well, we're there, getting we're getting to Dunedin quickly here. Yeah. Christchurch is the second largest city in New Zealand, and it's the largest city in the South Island. Yeah. Um, but the South Island is much less populated than the North Island. Mm-hmm. It's really just Christchurch and Dunedin, and Dunedin is further south, and it's a university town. It's it's only about a hundred thousand people, and Christchurch is you know three hundred fifty thousand or so. So Dunedin is kind of the woollier more student hippie cousin to to Christchurch. Christchurch is more the business town. But so the first release on Flying Nun, catalog number FN001, was in 1981, and that was a seven-inch single by The Pin Group, which was a Christchurch-based trio. singer-guitarist Roy Montgomery still records today under his own name. A lot of great records there. At fronting the pin group, he sang in a voice that it's absolutely reminiscent of Ian Curtis. Like pretty much 10 out of 10 people would say, that sounds like the guy from Joy Division. Mm -hmm. And in researching this, I found out something that I did not know until yesterday, which was that in 1980, Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division was released. And it actually went to number one in New Zealand huh. in 1980. That's just kind of unthinkable. Like, I mean, imagine it going to number one in America. Yeah. I, I, it didn't even go to number one in England. You yeah. know, even that was pretty unthinkable. It was still kind of an underground hit, even in England. And for it to go to number one on the New Zealand pop charts, I think says a lot. I think about that testiness. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the testiness, but also I, I think, you know, people always say the Velvet Underground is such a huge influence on 
on Flying Nun with like kind of the, the Mo Tucker style drum beat. I think it's it's all level terrace apart. I think that is the song that made Flying yeah. Nun sound like it does. Now that you say it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, the guitar tone alone. The guitar tone alone, but also the bass being sort of the lead instrument. Mm -hmm. the, the bass is what leads you through the song. The, the guitar is able to provide texture rather than carry the riff because the bass is what carries the riff. really see that with Joy Division. You know, the guitarist for Joy Division honestly was not maybe good enough to carry the riff. So mm -hmm. the bass player, Peter Hook, is who carried the song. And you really hear that in, in Flying Nun music. So that's just this last minute theory that like Level Terrace Apart was to the New Zealand punk scene, just like the Ramones 1976 tour of England was to the, the British punk okay. scene. I think that is well uh, reasoned and backed by, by the evidence that it was a number one hit. So how did it move to Dunedin and, and you know, why did yeah. all these bands? Well, then the second release on Flying Nun, FN002, was another seven inch and it was by The Clean. Yep. And they were, they were from Dunedin and that song was called Tally Ho. And it blew up. It went to number 19 on the New Zealand pop charts, which was huge for an underground label, basically yeah. just a local label that released College Town music. And I, I've heard Tally Ho described as the Louie Louie of New Zealand. <laughs> the Clean were a guitar trio, but uh, the guitarist David Kilgore played like a ringy-dink Farfisa organ on Tally Ho. So it has that kind of 60s garage punk Louie Louie sound. The Clean were just a super endearing band. Like, it's you know, very they, sweet music. Yeah, they very sweet melodies. And Tally Ho was huge. Uh, it gave the label a lot of cash and all of a sudden, cl the Clean became sort of the flagship band of Flying Nun instead mm -hmm. of the Pin Group. You know, who mm -hmm. they were thinking, "Oh, we're we're going to release the biggest band in Christchurch, the biggest underground band, the Pin Group." But the Clean were like, "Nope, sorry, we're the, we're the flagship band." And so, yeah, Dunedin just kind of took over as where Flying Nun was getting their bands. And then the band, the Chills, who are the song that I chose, Pink Frost. They were also from Dunedin. That was a little bit later, uh, I think 1984 is when Pink Frost was released. That band was fronted by a guy named Martin Phillips, who is a singer-songwriter. And again, you get that, that darkness, that testiness. It, it's funny how the 80s Dunedin scene is kind of like a prototype for the 90s Seattle scene. You've got the rainy weather, you've got the, the kind of mountains in the distance, you've got the coffee, the strong coffee. And frankly, the the drugs. Um, yeah. There was a lot of soft drug use in the <laughs> New Zealand scene. 
but also there were hard drugs. There was a there was a heroin thing going on in the Dunedin scene, and Martin Phillips was uh, on and off junkie for many years. And the song Pink Frost, it, it's it's a really dark song if you listen to the lyrics. basically about the protagonist waking up to find that his lover is dead or dying next to him and he's not sure if he did it or not so that's one interpretation is that it's like a noir scene or something but I think it's pretty clearly Martin Phillips tackling one of his biggest fears which is that he's going to overdose or his partner is going to overdose in front of him. So yeah, it's pretty harrowing. And I just wanted to throw out back to SST that the song Pink Turns to Blue by Husker Du is about much the same thing. Yeah. Written by Grant Hart, who was also an on and off again dabbler. Yeah. Those songs both came out in 1984, and there's no way that they influenced each other. They were too simultaneous. Both have pink in the title, and both are about (laughs) a, what appears to me, I mean, Pink Pink Turns of Blue is explicitly about a drug overdose, and I think Pink Frost is, uh, it's implicitly. ambiguous, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I think this is a good transition to my choice because something I was going to bring up is that I, I really would be shocked if Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian was not heavily influenced by the Dunedin sound and Flying Nun just musically. And then, you know, this just occurs to me now, you know, the fact that you're bringing up that these very sweet songs kind of hide the dark undercurrent of the drug use in, in the Dunedin scene. And Bell and Sebastian is very much known for having what at first blush sounds like wimpy <laughs> uh, twee music, but has a, a, a pretty dark undercurrent. Especially here, this kind of Bell and Sebastian influence, which unlike your Joy Division argument, I think I'm kind of pulling the Bell and Sebastian comparison out of my butt. Maybe I... (laughs) My choice is. Can I, look, can I, oh, can yeah, I yeah. just interject? I mean, yeah. I think you're. I think you're spot on. I think there's no way he wasn't aware of at least some of Flying Nun Nun's music, but also Dunedin and New Zealand really are heavily Scottish historically. Yeah. The people who migrated to New Zealand were not necessarily from Britain; they were from Scotland, kind of the uh, underdog nation. You know, that maybe didn't have the economic status that England did. So you tended to have more people migrating from Scotland. Right. So who knows? Maybe that was a connection. That connection there. Yeah, I'd be curious to dig into that more. But 
Yeah, so a song I chose that that very much kind of reminds me of Bell and Sebastian and their really kind of beautiful sound. And this this song does not have a, a dark undercurrent to it. It will be clear in a moment uh, why I emphatically chose it. It's called Cactus Cat. It's by the group Look Blue, Go Purple, inarguably the best name of the, the flying <laughs> of the sun uh, roster. Yeah, This is a group with Denise Ruhan and Kathy Bull. So this song, Cactus Cat, the very first lyrics are In the region of Tucson Where the gray cactus grows So we've got this group of women living on the South Island of New Zealand for some reason thinking about Tucson, uh, which <laughs> immediately stood out to me and just blew my mind. And so the cactus cat is actually a piece of southwestern lore. It is a cryptid that stalks the deserts of Tucson, the Sonoran Desert. It is basically like a bobcat, but it is like made of cactus. It has um, it has spikes, and they actually describe it right uh, in the song. Not like any other cat, she has thorny hair. Not like any other cat. She has thorny. According to the lore, the cactus cat stalks about in the night and slashes at the prickly pears and the saguaros of the desert, walks away, and then comes back once the leaking juices have fermented, and then drinks the fermented juices and then dances drunkenly in the light of the moon. Uh, wow. And this song is just very sweet. It's about, a, I guess, affection toward a, a pet or like a cryptid. Sounds kind of like a, a love song. Yeah, I don't know. This song is totally charming and it's, you know, it, it represents my hometown. I was going to throw in, you know, talking about the Dunedin sound, Flying Nun moved their label operations from Christchurch to Auckland in kind of the late 80s. They were having trouble scaling up. I think that's a theme we conceive with a lot of these labels. Yeah. When they have these kind of hits, they need to play in bigger waters, or yeah. I don't know if I'm mixing metaphors, but mm -hmm. they, they moved to Auckland and kind of were perceived as selling out a little bit mm -hmm. by abandoning their South Island lo-fi roots. You yeah. know, they're going to Auckland using professional studios, um, signing bands that had a more slick commercial sound. Mm -hmm. And Bruce Russell uh, down in the South Island started a label called Expressway, which was named after the Sonic Youth song, Expressway to Your Skull. And that was kind of holding down the lo-fi fort, yeah. uh, the roots. And anyway, he recently put, put together this compilation called Time to Go that um, was his version of that flying nun ideal, that South Island flying nun ideal. That's where I discovered Look, Look Blue Go Purple and yeah. immediately just fell in love with that yeah. band. I mean, it's so charming. Yeah. yeah. It ha I, I, I think to me, it's, it's not only the vocals, which are very like Cocteau twins, mm -hmm. very kind of clean, alto, almost like childlike quality mm -hmm. to it, but uh, that bass tone. Mm -hmm. is so I mean, we were talking about the go-go's in a recent episode it's that it's that like very punchy kind of bass tone that 
makes the whole song kind of sound really bubbly and fun. And also the, the, when I put it on, I was like, ah, this is why Dane chose the song, the yeah. Tucson reference. But I, mm-hmm. love, I love the idea of a cactus cat. I want to have one as a pet. Me too. Yeah. I'm going to go back to Tucson and catch one. So, I, so I love your choice. I'm, I'm so in love this. with this song. Okay, so I was trying to learn a little bit more about Flying Nun. I looked at the roster of artists and I said, I don't know any of these people, so let's just yep. dig in. And I chose the song Lichtung by Grayson Gilmore uh, because it is from an album called Infinite Life with an exclamation point at the end. And I said, man, I got to listen to that album. Uh, <laughs> and this song, Lift Tongue, is uh, on that album. It is very rad. Grayson Gilmore is a band member, uh, formed a band called So So Modern at the tender age of 20. And they kind of went on to do a lot of kind of theatrical, you know, crazy stuff on stage, wearing big costumes as a solo artist signed to Flying Nun. And he was actually the first signing of Flying Nun's 2010 relaunch. Um, and he uh, I didn't realize they had two different parts. Yeah, yeah. So he, so he put out this album, uh, Infinite Life, after, after the relaunch um, in 2014. It actually got quite a lot of attention. It was nominated for Best Alternative Album at the New Zealand Music Awards. And Spotify doesn't seem to think that many people are into this album because it's got like 10,000 listens to maybe <laughs> you know, most of the songs, if, if that many. Um, but this song is awesome. I was yeah. immediately drawn into it. It sounds a lot to me like Matthew Deere, if you guys know of Matthew Deere, but it, it it's just using so many disparate little samples and this really kind of propulsive bass line and... Bono-ish vocals. Yeah, it's just a lot of different stuff going on and it, it is really caught my attention and held my attention for all, you know, five minutes of the song. When I had started listening to bands off of this record label, I thought I kind of knew what to expect for the rest of the songs I would hear. And this felt totally different in a really exciting way. So I, I dug this song a lot. For the winner of Flying Nun, I'm I'm a real big fan of this Grayson Gilmore song. Although it'd be sacrilegious to to go with a non-Golden Era pick, so maybe a, a three-way tie. I think we all brought something quite quite wonderful uh, to this category. What do you guys think? I learned about cactus cats, so I'm happy to give you at least a share of the points. Yeah. And you know, Matt's chills uh, choice. I think. I mean, it, it makes me appreciate this roster of bands even more in this kind of cultural mm-hmm. scene. The fact that the music sounds so breezy, but to know that there was definitely some hum- some humanity to it, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. I did appreciate learning about Flying Nun after the 80s with uh, the Grayson Gilmore track, because I'm still working through the 80s <laughs> with Flying Nun. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty vast catalog. So yeah, for sure. yeah that was cool. It was good yeah. to hear what they're up to now. Okay, our final category today, and again with our our Chicago bookmark, we have the most important blues R&B imprint, you know, arguably in the country uh, based in Chicago, and then, you know, arguably the most important indie label uh, based in Chicago, which is Drag City. 
So I will talk a bit about Drag City. Um, I'll put a link in the show description for a couple of articles that I think are really um, a delight to, to read about. One is this uh, feature written in Spin uh, in 1993 by Don Howland uh, about Drag City. And then another uh, thing that I'll talk about in a bit is this wonderful piece from the Tribune by Greg Cott, the great Chicago rock critic about the Drag City Invitational, which I'll talk about in a moment. But so Drag City in a way was also kind of like lightning in a bottle in the way that SST was. But in this way, they're like almost more like the bizarro world version of sub pop, like in this weird parallel universe where instead of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Nirvana becoming the biggest thing of all time and grunge becoming the great kind of figurehead of underground music made popular, it was instead like a weird folk rock and noise music mm -hmm. being Nirvana. Like we have, you know, Will Oldham being the Kurt Cobain of, uh, of the moment instead. It's, um, so I would describe Drag City as the label for everyone's favorite indie rock act. They're most likely kept in the green to this day by their ownership of early pavement material. So even pre-Slanted and Enchanted, their uh, debut album, this is kind of like their uh, their EPs and, and, and stuff like that. And early on, what really kept them going was the pavement kind of like odds and sods collection album. Uh, Westing by Westing Muskets by, or something. Yeah, Westing <laughs> by Musket and Sexton or something like that. Yeah. And that really kind of helped uh, Drag City continue on. But so basically, Drag City was founded by Dan Koretsky and Dan Osborne, the two the two Dans, uh, in Chicago in 1990. And they were both about 25 when they founded it. And the original uh, offices of uh, Drag City were in Dan Koretsky's kitchen. Uh, but right now, currently, they are located at Wellington and Cicero in Chicago by a high school that Ethan worked at, uh, Kelvin Park. Oh, yeah. So that is where the Drag City offices currently reside. Um, and also very close to the birthplace of Walt Disney. Yes. Fun fact. Yeah, fun fact. Keeping the dream alive. Uh, so yeah, these two guys were just these kind of scrappy uh, indie music fans, uh, underground music fans, kind of subsisting on a $5 an hour income, kind of crunching through uh, this, this music. And then they were mostly at the beginning focused on vinyl. So uh, their first single was by the group Royal Trucks, which I will get to because that is my choice for this category. The, the story of Drag City is also the story of the group Royal Trucks. Drag City's original brand was described as Greg Cott as uh, all the bands share a low-tech, feel-the-moment aesthetic that can reach transcendent heights just as easily as it can clear a room. <laughs> um, classic Drag City roster is very much the manifestation of 80s, 90s fanzine culture because Dan Kretzky and Dan Osborne were fans first and foremost. And this entire classic roster of Drag City artists were all because of these interpersonal fan artist relationships that the founders had with each of these guys. So, you know, really quickly on the kind of classic roster was early pavement, the Silver Jews, Royal Trucks, Smog, King Kong, Palace Brothers, which is one of the many names of Will Oldham and all of his projects. Yeah, and so uh, according to the Spin article, fandom is surely the crux of Drag City. Of the six bands on the active roster, only one, the Palace Brothers, sent the label a demo. The others were all contacted by Kretzky, the fan. 
Bill Callahan had sold self-produced tapes out of a self-produced fanzine disaster that Kretzky admired. King Kong had done two singles in an LP for other labels that he enjoyed, etc., etc. I personally, I brought up Drag City as one of our options here because I have a lot of affection for them because I used to have this random poster for the 1993 Drag City Invitational, which was a music festival in 1993 put on by the label. This Tribune piece is very charming and I I recommend you read it, but he kind of talks about how he says, among Drag City's coups was to release the first series of records by Pavement. A Stockton, mind you, this was written before kind of the explosion of Slanted and Enchanted. Stockton Quintent, anointed by some as Nirvana's indie rock heir apparent. An expectation the band has consistently deflated, perhaps intentionally with distracted concerts. So just kind of- Perhaps intentionally. Perhaps intentionally. (laughs) Now now we know uh, in retrospect, for sure intentionally. (laughs) So yeah, Drag City is really one of these Cinderella stories where they happen to pick up just a bunch of indie critical darlings. Like I said, everybody's favorite indie band. Well, that, that kind of continued with Joanna Newsom too, yeah. I would say. I think she was kind of a big cash cow, if you will. For sure. To like keep them going into the 2000s. For sure, yeah. And some of the other modern people they have on are, are Jessica Pratt and Circuit uh, De You and uh, Ethan's Choice, Ty Siegel, the, the darling of the garage rock uh, revival of one, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I'll talk really quickly about my choice. Uh, my choice is I'm Ready by Royal Trucks. Like I said, the story of Drag City is the story of Royal Trucks, and the story of Royal Trucks is the story of Drag City. Drag City formed because Dan Kretzky was working in record distribution in Chicago, and he heard Royal Trucks' uh, self-produced album, uh, debut album. And Royal Trucks is a duo of Neil Haggerty, and Jennifer Harema. Neil Haggerty was in DC and he was in the Discord scene, um, the later Discord scene, playing with John Spencer's old band Pussy Galore. And he left Pussy Galore to start Royal Trucks with his girlfriend, Jennifer Harema, and they are have been described by more than one person as noise terrorists. This song I picked is maybe a little more melodic, but you can definitely hear the nasty, crunchy, sludgy kind of sound of it. And they uh, definitely go in some much crazier directions as well. So the first single on Drag City was Royal Truck's Hero Zero. second uh, single was Pavement's Demolition Plot J7, which sold very well and uh, got the ball rolling for Drag City. The Royal Trucks kind of brought critical attention to Drag City and Drag City provided a couch in Chicago and books off the bookshelf for Royal Trucks to pilfer for all of their upcoming tours. Royal Trucks also, like the Dunedin scene that Matt was describing, a group of people utterly uh, devastated by heroin addiction and Mm. uh, you can absolutely hear it in in the music. Where are you? Know I'm ready. 
it's a banger. Oh, it's such a banger. I mean, I, I chose I chose the Bad Brain song FVK from their live album because it gives you that sense of like the boisterousness of live punk music. This is just a recorded version of that in the studio somehow. It's like yeah. so nuts and so big. I don't know. It's it, so feels, in the red. it feels like glam rock. It feels like, yeah. I, I don't know, just like so it can fill an arena kind of sound to yeah. me. It's just, I, I really, really like this song. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, Royal Trucks is a fascinating band. And a little more about that song is they started off, like Dane said, they were so in intertwined with Drag City, but they left for a major label, which was Virgin, and got a pretty good deal, kind of a post-Nirvana expensive you know, they made a lot of money from Virgin, even though their albums didn't. And uh, they broke their contract with Virgin and Virgin was more than happy to release them <laughs> because they were so weird. Yeah. And they, they went back to Drag City and this was their return to Drag City, the Accelerator album. Yeah. And that I'm Ready is the first song on the album. And I always kind of heard it as like, hey, we're back. You know, yeah. we're, we're, <laughs> we, we're done with the major label nonsense. We're back home on Drag City. I'm ready, you know. <laughs> Matt, why don't you talk about what I will say is another classic Drag City player, Will Oldham. And I'll quickly say, because uh, you mentioned this before, there is a Louisville connection to Drag City because Will Oldham is from Louisville and a little bit of mm -hmm. trivia, uh, Slint's classic album cover for Spiderland. That's a photograph taken by Will Oldham. I don't know if you, huh. you knew that. Yeah. And then, King Kong, another band on the classic Drag City roster, is a former member of Slint from Louisville. So, Yeah, and uh, the song I chose um, long before from the first Palace Brothers album, There Is No One What Will Take Care Of You. I think I said that right. Mm -hmm. The backing band is Slint, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah, really? like that was, <laughs> that was when Will Oldham started recording his own songs. He was hanging out with them still, uh, obviously they were friends, and they were just kind of adding parts to his sparse arrangements. Long before the house was leaning, oh, long before the corner and I believe they were uncredited on that album. You know, it, it was a very mysterious thing. That is wild. Will, yeah. Will Oldham in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's everyone but Dave Pajo from the original Spiderland Splint lineup played on that album. Yeah, like I, I, I wanted to choose a Royal Truck song. You, you said their first two releases were those seven inches. Their, their third release was a double LP by Royal Trucks called Twin Infinitives, mm -hmm. which was a very bold thing to do for their third release. But like yeah. you said, they're probably using some of that pavement cash to pay yeah. for it. And for their there's, darlings, yeah. Yeah, there's a great story in the Chicago Reader about Dan Koretsky hauling all the albums up to his fifth floor or third floor <laughs> apartment all by himself. Herniating um, a disc, probably. Yeah, yeah. It, but anyway, so yeah, that, there's such a part of the history. I wanted to choose them, but Will Oldham really is just as much as part of Drag City's history. Yeah, cements that kind of Louisville-Chicago connection. And, you know, Will Oldham, like, at the time... 
he's a little less mysterious now, but at the time it was like, who is this guy? Is he, mm-hmm. is he inbred? Is he, yeah. is he he's the a son weird of, looking dude. Is he the son of a coal miner? You know, because he was in the film Mate One, yeah. uh, the John Sayles film, where he kind of played that West Virginia young preacher, kind of fundamentalist, fiery preacher. Yeah. The, the palace persona was almost like, his mate one character now singing and doing singer songwriters. And it's, and it's funny because Greg caught in the article about the invitational, he basically is like, you know, Will Oldham plays this, this adolescent preacher in this John Sayles film, but, and he, he seems like a Blue Ridge mountain kind of figure, but he's a rich kid. Like Greg caught, like calls him out and (laughs) says, this is, you know, Will Oldham's a rich kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, he was doing too much to discourage that kind of association with the mate one role with palace because that, that first album, you know, I mean, talk about dark lyrics. Like there's another song called I was drunk at the pulpit, which again, he's playing that playing into that, yeah. <laughs> playing into that weird preacher role, like the unreliable preacher, <laughs> the unreliable narrator, you know, all that's in there. And this, this song long before, I mean, I'm glad to hear you're not playing the whole song now. You're just playing snippets because mm. he does one of his weird Will Oldham outbursts where he starts saying some, using some uh, unsettling language all of a sudden, mm. uh, which he, he's kind of known for in his career. There, there's another song where he kind of bursts out and says, if I could fuck a mountain, Lord, I would fuck a mountain, and I'd do it with a woman. Yep. Yeah, do you know that song? Yeah. <laughs> well, long before it kind of has a, a late outburst like that, too. But it's a really creepy song. Of uh, I think it's, you know, I think incest is pretty much the elephant in the room if you're trying to figure out what this song is about just that kind of backwoods Faulkner-esque dysfunctional is this deliverance (laughs) I hope this is not deliverance kind of vibe yeah, but it's also a beautiful song. Yeah. Uh, it's got a really great memorable hook with the chorus, mm-hmm. kind of call and response using the title long before. His voice cracking like crazy, which was yeah. another kind of early trademark of Will Oldham's that he didn't really try to discourage. Yeah, yeah and then you've got that really sparse backing by Slint. like lots of his albums and he grew and changed and did all kinds of things. I, I love this album. I really need to explore Will Oldham more. Ethan, take us home with Ty Seagal. Siegel? It is Ty Siegel. Ty Siegel. And I'll tell you why I know it's Ty Siegel. I was actually not sure before yesterday when I was doing some more research on Ty Siegel. The reason I know his last name is pronounced Siegel is because he just released 
at the outset of our lovely uh, COVID-19 pandemic, a release called Siegel Smeagol, which is a set of covers from Harry Nilsson's Nilsson Schmilson. That's extremely funny. <laughs> Seriously, so, I knew you were going to talk about Nilsson Schmilson. I somehow knew that. You had really it. It's all going to come back to that. Well, I think, yeah. I think it's, it's appropriate because, so Ty Siegel is, as Dane said, perhaps uh, the one, one person revival of garage rock. I think of him as a superhero. He is like the most energetic, insane, productive, prolific musician. I think especially playing in this genre from Laguna Beach, California originally, started playing in various underground bands in Orange County and moved to San Francisco, went to University of San Francisco and started recording these albums in the early 2010s. And his music and his energy is like a combination of like a punk aesthetic and a Harry Nilsson kind of like goofiness. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think, the, again, the fact that he did covers of Nilsson Schmilson uh, is, is totally in his lane. Incredible. Um, he's bounced around a couple of different labels, but- um, He's very prolific too. Yeah, so, it, so to, to get back to that, he, he has released 11 albums since 2008. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it's not something that you see a lot anymore because we're not, I mean, to go back to our, our chess records discussion, you don't see artists being forced to just output music. And so a lot of artists are like, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to D'Angelo this and take 13 years to put yeah. out my next album, right? Be it for personal reasons or artistic reasons or otherwise. That is kind of the opposite of what we've seen in the hip hop world, at least definitely in the 2010s. Lil Wayne putting out like a thousand albums and mixtapes and stuff like that. That sort of became the, the blueprint for artists of that era. Ty Siegel's doing the same thing, but in a genre that I don't think has seen as much of that, just complete prolific outpouring of content. I would, I would say only Parquet Courts are the like rock bands that are doing the album a year. Model. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and well, I, I just mentioned them, but King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard, also a band that's like, I think they released like five albums in 2019 or something like that. Whoa. Crazy stuff. It's just not something you see a lot of. And so I think of him as this like superhero because he's super prolific, but his energy is insane. I got to see him at Talia Hall in Chicago. If you watch a video of him, he's played on, you know, Dave Letterman and stuff like that. It is like a, a grasshopper, like in a box, just jumping around and so much energy. And the song that I chose was the first Ty Siegel song I ever heard, which is You're the Doctor from his album Twins. And so this is one of a few albums that were released on Drag City. And this song is, is an encapsulation of his energy. It's just like two minutes of pure power. of his guitar is is halfway between I borrowed my neighbor's stepson's guitar amp that has cigarette burns in the front of it and I you know went into a really nice professional studio with my like thousand dollar orange amplifier and recorded this It's just like he is all about energy and he's also all about tone. And 
he's kind of known amongst uh, guitar heads for having these really nice vintage uh, guitars and kind of cultivating his sound in that way. But he just does it all. He's a producer. He's a songwriter. His live shows are insane. He's goofy as hell. And I think that he is continuing to carry this torch, I suppose, of like the garage rock sound far beyond what I ever imagined would be its lifespan. All right, so we've gone on. We've gone on quite a journey. Oh man, we sure have. We've done a, a really nice little uh, journey of recent American music history. I'm I'm happy with it. And uh, international too. Don't forget, we went to New Zealand. In, that's true. Bit, yeah. The the Canada of Oceania. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's so true. All right. Well, you know, Matt, you're the winner. Truly, what? listener, you're the winner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forgetting um, all this information. All I don't know if you watched Whose Line Is It Anyway uh, in the 90s, but, you know, the points don't matter. The points definitely don't matter. The, the winner is, is, is Matt for bringing such incredible knowledge uh, to this episode. Yeah, thanks for dropping these knowledge bombs on us. This is great. Well, I'm, it was a pleasure, and I certain you guys dropped your share as well, so I, I loved it. So thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, Matt, so in the show description, I will link uh, Facet's website so people can learn about that. And uh, I will link Blastitude as well, if, if you're, you're still okay with uh, uh, unveiling Larry Dolman. Yeah, I feel like this is a good, you know, low-key place to do that. Um, sure. But I, I would link to blastitude.substack.com. Okay. I that's like my, yeah, I just kind of started dipping my toe in that. So that's the most current place. All right. Well, thank you to our listeners and go to our link tree to uh, find our Instagram and find the official chorus versus chorus playlist. If you would like to hear the full songs and be well, everybody love you. Thanks a bunch. Bye.